Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Brandon. I am one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. It's great to see you. Uh, happy 2023. Happy New Year. Uh, that's the last time I'm going to say that to you. I think we're at the end of when it's acceptable to say Happy New Year, right? We're on to something different. Uh, today we're starting a new series uh, in the book of Micah uh, called Seeing God's Goodness in the Darkness. Uh, so if you have a Bible, uh, you want to go ahead and turn to the book of Micah, that would be great. Now, if you're using your phone or tablet, uh, today is a good day for you uh, because you can just click on the contents and navigate it yourself. Uh, if you're using a print version of the Bible, I imagine finding the book of Micah is not going to be the easiest thing that you've done today. Uh, so it's near the end of the Old Testament. Uh, so if you get to Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, you're heading in the right direction. Uh, if you get to Nahum, uh, Habakkuk, or Zephaniah, you went a little too far. And if you can pronounce all of those, you get three gold stars, all right? Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. One of my favorite Pixar movies is the 2008 classic Wally. I don't know if we've got any other Wally fans in here, but I have to tell you, I'm a sucker for a dystopian love story between robots. <clears throat> Something about that movie just grabs my heart. Uh, I absolutely love that movie. Uh, years ago, when it first came out in 2008, uh, the scene of a group of people on a cosmic cruise ship being uh, scurried around in their own little hovering carts, uh, consuming their entire lives on a screen, and receiving nutritious smoothies on command seemed ludicrous. But in 2022... 2023, sorry, New Year, 2023, you're like, man, that's not so crazy, right? I mean, we are in an epidemic of people not getting enough exercise. We spend most of our lives staring at screen, and we got DoorDash to bring us food whenever we want. We just order it up on a screen. It's not very different than the dystopian tale told in the movie Wally about our end. Of course, if you remember the movie, what's actually going on is robots are running the entire world and they have placated all of the humans with their screens and smoothies and ease of life. And we also, I think the book of Micah is going to show, have placated ourselves with various forms of escapism just so we don't have to look at reality. Reality can be painful. It's much easier to drink our slushies and smoothies and stare at our screens. It's much easier to numb ourselves with misusing prescription drugs. It's much easier to escape into pornography than deal with real problems and have real relationships. It is much easier to pretend like we care about social justice on social media than to actually face the hardship, corruption, injustice, and even the sin in our own hearts that surround us in our world. Well, the book of Micah is not going to let us do that today. Just like it didn't for its original hearers 2,700 years ago. 
So let's pray together and we'll jump in to Micah chapter one, verse one. Father, uh, in these moments, could you by your spirit show us the truth in your word? And Father, these moments today where we see in the scripture hard truths and we want to push back, God, could you make us sensitive and tender to your truth? Amen. Micah 1, chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So first verse, we meet this guy, Micah. Who is Micah? Micah's a prophet. We know that by the phrase, the word of the Lord. Uh, That's the way the Old Testament scriptures identify a prophet. A prophet is one who hears the word of the Lord from the Lord and is given the responsibility to communicate that word to the people. So prophets are folks who've been chosen by God to speak on his behalf to God's people. That's who Micah is. Now, he lives in this place called Moresheth. And here's what you need to know about Moresheth. It's in the country. So he lives about 25 miles outside of the big city of Jerusalem. It's where he grew up. And so when the scriptures tells us he's from Moresheth, it's kind of like saying he's from Adairsville or Jasper or Rockmart or Griffin. He's not from the city center. He's on the outskirts. And you can imagine without cars, 25 miles takes a lot longer in this day than it does in ours. Unless you're trying to do the 25 miles at 8.30 in the morning and you're on 75 south, uh, then probably you could walk faster. Now, Morsheth is in the southern kingdom, or Judah. At this time, all of God's people have been divided from one great kingdom into two. Uh, The northern kingdom is Israel. Its main hub, main city is Samaria. And the southern kingdom is Judah. Its main city or hub is Jerusalem. And that's where Micah is. Now, verse 1 also gives us the context. It says, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah. That puts the timeline somewhere between 735 and 710 BC. It's when we think Micah's writing these, uh, actually these are messages, sermons, that uh, scholars believe have been assembled together into one unit. This is a time for both kingdoms of prosperity, but that prosperity is quickly ending Because at this time, the Assyrians are coming, and they have invaded and are taking over the northern kingdom of Israel. And so Micah then is watching the invasion of his neighbors to the north, and then warning his countrymen, this can happen to us too. We're no different from them. What's led to this point is what is going to lead to the same thing for us. In fact... For some Bible trivia nerds, this is recorded in 2 Kings 18. So the Assyrians in 2 Kings 18 start to encroach on some cities in Judah. They approach the king Hezekiah to make a deal. And actually, Jeremiah chapter 26 tells us that Hezekiah hears a message from Micah. So one of the things we're going to read today from Micah makes it all the way to the palace. The king hears it, and that's when he chooses not to make a deal with the Assyrians, but rather to trust God. And so that's what it's all happening in the context of the book of Micah. So that's his audience, the people of Judah, 
He's warning them about coming judgment, saying you may have escaped the Assyrians for now, but your good fortunes will not last forever. He's also writing to the city, to the cultural elites. We're going to find in the book of Micah that he's writing to expose the corruption of power in the elite city center. He's doing that on behalf of the poor and oppressed outside of the city. And there's a lot of bad news in the book of Micah, but it's also full of a lot of hope. So Micah is going to tell us that this time of judgment from the Lord isn't forever, that God has not forgotten his people, and that ultimately God himself will save his people. So verse 2, hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like fire, like wax before the fire, like waters pour down on a steep place. Here's what he says. God is going to show up. And God is coming not to save, but God is coming, Micah says, as a star witness to testify against his own people. And he points out, verse five, what God's testimony is going to contain. All of this is for the transgression of Jacob, he says, for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. Verse 7. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All of her wages shall be burned with fire. And all of her idols I will lay waste. For the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Specifically God's testimony is that there are some particular people to blame for the current predicament. Most of the blame is with the leaders. You see that in verse 5? What's the issue? He says, is it not Samaria, the city center, the place of power? Is it not Jerusalem? Is it not where all of the influence is coming out of? Now, we're going to find out in the book in a couple of weeks that Micah is going to call out all sorts of leaders who are under God's judgment. He's going to call out political leaders, judges, and kings. He's also going to call out religious leaders, priests, and prophets. But the idea in chapter one is that God is coming to hold his people accountable and he is going to hold especially accountable all of these influencers who are corrupting the entire country. He's going to hold them accountable. And then in verse seven, he identifies the heart of the issue for all of the people. And the heart of the issue, he says, is idolatry. That they have abandoned the worship of the one true God in order to worship carved images and worship in high places, that they've left God behind. Now, I love Tim Keller gives us a definition of idolatry that I think maybe is a little easier for us to grasp uh, because we don't live in a community or a country where when we drive down the road, we see erected idols everywhere uh, unless you go to a um, Republican gathering where the Trump idol was carted uh, through the halls I knew that joke wasn't going to work. It's gold Trump. Anyway, you guys didn't see it. That's fine. Here's what 
Here's what Tim, here's what Tim Keller says about idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And with that definition of idolatry, it starts to take on a new meaning, doesn't it? It means that it could be anything in our lives, even good things, that take the place of God that we start to trust to supply for us value, meaning, purpose, and security. And so while the context of the book of Micah is very different from our current cultural context, the heart of the matter is the same, that we are a people who trust in all sorts of cultural idols in order to bring us significance and meaning. So the rest of chapter three, he points out three of those things. Number one, three characteristics of idolatry. The first thing he says is idols are counterfeits. You see this in verse seven. All her carved images shall be beaten into pieces. All of her wages shall be burned with fire. And all of her idols I will lay waste. From the fee of, fee of a prostitute, she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute, they shall return. What does Micah point out? that the idols of the people don't compare to the Lord most high, that the idols will be beaten to pieces, that what they're trusting in ultimately will be burned with fire. It'll all be laid to waste, that it is God who has the ultimate power over them, not the idols themselves. They are counterfeits, false gods who claim to have power but don't, claim to be gods but are nothing more than pieces of wood that can be consumed by fire. He says, in fact, idolatry is like engaging in prostitution. It might be thrilling. It might be the escape of reality that you wanted for a moment, but ultimately it isn't real. Not real intimacy, not a real relationship. It is a manufactured experience. And so Micah is calling these people out of idolatry and saying, it's not real, it's fake. It's staring at a screen and believing that everything is okay. And we go, oh, there's no problem. I don't have any carved images that are gonna be consumed by fire at my house. Not an issue for me whatsoever. I'm so glad we're not like those primitive people worshiping those primitive gods. And it would be easy to laugh off these people as primitive, worshiping counterfeit gods, but we have counterfeits in our lives as well. Remember what Keller said, anything, anything that we think will bring us meaning, value, significance, and security can become an idol in our lives. And so while we don't have carved images attached uh, to good things, like the people, remember this too, this is important. None of these people were worshiping idols for the sake of worshiping idols. They were worshiping idols to get what they wanted, right? To get prosperity, to get the harvest for fertility, for victory in war and for peace, which isn't that much different for us. We have our counterfeits as well. Money, sex, beauty, freedom. Can be good things, remember? Self-sufficiency, individualism. 
all can become idols for us whenever we believe those counterfeits will give us what only God can provide. So the first characteristic we see in the passage is that idols are counterfeits. Vague image for real God. Second thing we see is this, is that idolatry is a cancer. Verse 8. For this I will lament and wail, Micah says. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like jackals and mourning like ostriches. For her, that's his country, for her wound is incurable, he says. And it has come to Judah. It has reached the gates of my people to Jerusalem. Micah laments. He just pauses for a second. He's like, you think I want to do this? You think I want to say this? You think this is fun? You think this is why I got a college degree? Studied biblical theology so I could say hard things to people? He's like, no. No, I'm lamenting. I take no pride in this. I take no enjoyment in this. I'm, I'm sorrowful for my people. But he must tell them hard things. And he says their idolatry is a wound that is incurable. And that wound like a cancer has spread from Israel into Judah. It is like a fast-moving infection. It's like cancer caught too late, where even though Samaria is being removed from the equation, the cancer has already spread. And he, Micah, is like a doctor who has to tell his patients the bad news. Here's your diagnosis. The diagnosis doesn't make you sick. Somebody saying hard things is not the problem. The diagnosis, when it conforms to reality, is pointing out to us that we are sick and we need help. And if the cancer inside of us, just like the cancer inside of this people, this spiritual sickness persists, then it will destroy us and kill us. But often, we don't want to hear this. Especially in the church, we believe that our personal piety is enough to save us. But the reality is, the Bible talks about sin like a corrupting influence that is pervasive. And then it creeps into every corner or crack of our lives where it can get a foothold. This is why John Calvin says that our hearts are perpetual idol factories. That we are constantly trying to find things to give our affection and our worship to. And it is an incurable wound. It is one that our own righteousness, well-doing, morality is hopeless to defend against. What we need, what we're going to see next week, is a God who is powerful enough to save us. The problem here in this passage and the problem for us too is that the people don't see their sin. They don't understand how deep it goes. They, like us, are like the people in Wally, perfectly happy to keep doing what they've been doing, not thinking about the fact that their lives are being controlled by robots. The people are turning a blind eye to corruption. The people in the rural areas have adopted the idolatrous practices of the city as it's spread out. When you are in the darkness, everything looks dark until somebody shines a light on it. And so that's what Micah does next. In verses 10 through 16, Micah points out very specifically what's going on in very specific places. 
I'm not going to read that entire text in the ESV because you can't grab the meaning in the ESV. Here's what Micah does. In the middle of launching a message of judgment on the people, he starts to get funny. It doesn't make sense in English, but it makes sense in Hebrew. Here's what these next six verses are. They're puns. Micah's making jokes. And you don't catch it in English. You have to know the Hebrew meaning of the individual cities that he calls out to understand what's going on. But they're puns. It's like some bad dad jokes going on in the text. It's one of my favorites. I had a crazy dream last night. I was swimming in an ocean of orange soda. Turns out it was just a fantasy. Right? It's pretty good. I told Kristen this a couple weeks ago that when I die, I want to be cremated. This is my last hope for a smoking hot body. It's puns. That's what Micah is doing here. And so I want to read it to you in the message version so you can grasp what's going on. Here's what he says, verse 10. Don't gossip about this in tell town. Don't waste your tears in Dustville, roll in the dust. In alarm town, the alarm is sounded. The citizens of Exitburg will never get out alive. Lament last stand city. There is nothing in you left standing. The villagers of Bittertown wait in vain for sweet peace. Harsh judgment has come from God and entered peace city. All you who live in Chariotville, get your chariots for the fight. You have led the daughter of Zion into trusting not God, but chariots. Similar sins in Israel have also gotten their start in you. Go ahead and give goodbye gifts to Goodbyeville. Mirage town beckoned, but disappointed Israel's kings. Inherited city has lost its inheritance. Glory town has seen its last glory. Shave your heads in mourning over the loss of your precious towns. Go bald as a goose egg. They've gone into exile and aren't coming back. What's he trying to tell us? This is the third thing about idolatry. Idolatry is often concealed by culture. It's subtle, and that's what makes it so tricky. These towns didn't set out to worship false gods, but what they did is they placed their identity in something other than the Lord. They took great pride in their identity as a community or pride in what they did best. They called themselves by these names because they believed that these were the most important things about them. But then, this is the subtlety of it, once they allowed those things to define them, those were the very things that led to their destruction. So it's good to be a place of bravery that makes a last stand, like Last Stand City. It's good to be a place that leaves a legacy like Inheritance City. It's good to make awesome chariots, right? But when those things become idols, when they become their identity, when everything is based on how well I can make a chariot or what kind of legacy I'm leaving behind me, or if I'm brave enough to make a last stand, even those subtle cultural idols can be our undoing. It is easy for good things to become idols in our lives. And these are often the things that undo us. Let me give you some examples, contemporary examples. Providing for your family is a good thing. However, that can quickly turn into being enslaved 
to money and the constant pursuit of providing the best for our families. So soon we justify long hours at work in order to make more money because that's what's necessary to keep our kids in the best private schools. But that very thing is what keeps us from being home in time for dinner to spend time for our, with our kids. And so our idol starts to put distance between us and what's really important. So 15 years from now, what our kids go to counseling for is not because they went to the wrong school, but because they had a distant father. And our idols start to eat or destroy who we want to be. Second example, adventure is good. Instagram the whole thing if you want, right? But pursuing adventures at the cost of your community will destroy what makes adventures good. People to share it with. And my fear for some of us, we're so caught up in Instagramming what we do to people we don't know that we're neglecting people that we do know. And our idols start to devour us. We're pretty soon, we got a lot of great pictures of a lot of amazing adventures and unbelievable experiences and no one left who actually knows who we are. So what about our bigger, those are some personal ones, what about our bigger cultural idols? What are we concealing in our culture that could be idols in our lives? I tried a couple, not as good as Micah. The people of Pioneer Town have ended without a home. It's American culture. The grass is always greener. The new place is always better. We're going to a new land, a new people to make something of our lives. And that pioneer impulse is good, but when it becomes an idol, we end up without, no, without a home. Not connected to anyone, anywhere. Experiencing isolation and loneliness with no security, no safety, no warmth, and no people. A subtle cultural idol. Or how about this one? The land of freedom seekers will be free from their happiness. That the idolatry of personal autonomy and individualism will actually be our undoing. That we'll be so free Pursue everything that we want, that the very thing that we're leaving behind in our pursuit of freedom is actual happiness. This is the story of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15 that Jesus tells. I want to do things my own way and where it ended was disaster. How about this one? Sex city will find itself without intimacy. Can I be really frank with you guys? How many more Me Too moments do we need before we confess, after all, that the sexual revolution was an abysmal failure? Heck, according to studies, we're not only losing intimacy with each other in our current obsession with sex, we're actually having sex less. It's a destruction. Because when you make sex an idol, guess what you lose? The intimacy that goes along with it and then the actual event. We are too busy watching sex on screens to engage in it ourselves. 
and we continue to over-sexualize our daughters and ignore the consequences? When are we just gonna say it didn't work? Or how about this, it's related. The guild of crafters of self will craft a caricature of humanity. That our current idolatry of self-determinism is going to lead us to a place where we don't look like people. That we're going to continue to believe the cultural myth that we can determine everything about ourselves. Not just from our career paths, but also our biological makeup to the point where what we end up with is something not quite human. It's like plastic surgery gone wrong. I just keep making the lips bigger and the cheekbones higher, and what do you end up with? It's not quite the way people are supposed to look. We can continue to fine-tune and edit our online identities. We can continue pointing out our high points and hiding our low points. We can keep adding genders and sexual identities and a million other ways to define ourselves. My fear is only to find that we've crafted ourselves into something that we never intended to be. Because perhaps crafting our own image is not our job, but God's which is why the scripture begins in Genesis chapter one with God creating people in his image, not the image that we long to portray. The sexual revolution and all of its cultural offshoots will teach us that freedom from restraint, uh, freedom comes when we cast off all restraint. It comes when we have sex with whoever we wanna have sex with, we, we embrace whatever identity we want, but it hasn't brought us a freedom or meaning that we long for. It just brought us exploitation, victimization, abuse, and has sucked the intimacy out of our real relationships. Guys, it's an idol. It can't save us. And this is one of the reasons as a church, we must maintain biblical sexual ethics. Because one day, the wheels are going to completely come off the sexual revolution. And we need to be ready to actually help our neighbors who've been destroyed by its empty promises. We have to be able to care for people who've been broken by its empty, hollow, shallow promises. Not be a people who perpetuated the lie that sexual freedom brings you significance, value, and meaning. It's not true. And my fear is if we compromise, we'll be complicit in their demise and have nothing to offer when they need it. No hope, no new life, no forgiveness, and definitely no believable message of good news. Now, in our correction from the sexual revolution, the church is not exempt from any of this. In fact, what we promoted instead is the idol of marriage and a nuclear family. And our answer to our culture has not been Christ's. Instead, it's been, hey, just do a better job of being like us. And so we've exalted marriage to be a place where you find significance, value, and meaning instead of marriage to be a tool that God uses to point you back to him where you find significant value and meaning. 
And we have marginalized our single brothers and sisters, pushed them to the side, saying things like, motherhood is the greatest gift you could ever receive. It's not. It's a good gift. The gospel is the greatest gift you could ever receive. And for some of us, singleness is the greatest gift we could ever receive. That's what Paul says. Let me give you one example from the scripture. Jesus, never married, had zero kids. Anything lacking in Jesus? Here's the problem. In all of these ways, we are running away from escaping reality. Entertaining ourselves cultural myths that we consume through our screens. This is what Jen Oshman says is so bad about it. She says we're suffering. We're suffering because we live, we're living outside of reality. And she's quoting Dallas Willard here. Reality does not adjust itself to accommodate our false beliefs. It's just not real. It's not realistic. It's not real life. That anything temporary like sex or another human being or a consumer item on Amazon will fulfill the deep down longings, dreams, and desires. But we don't believe it. We just think if we find a new good to consume, a new church to attend, healthier friendships, a new family, fill in the blank. We're going to be fine. Josh Cohen, in an article, he's a psychologist, an article called Millennial Burnout is Real, comments on our cultural predicament in this moment that people are feeling burned out. Here's what he says. The message that we can work harder and be better at everything, even rest and relaxation, results in a strange composite of exhaustion and anxiety, a permanent state of dissatisfaction with who we are and what we have. And it leaves us feeling that we are servants rather than masters of our work. And it's not just our wage employment, but the unending work we put into achieving our so-called best selves. He doesn't make this diagnosis, but I will. That is a result of heart idolatry. The belief that I can craft a better life for myself. If I Instagram it right, if I go on the right trip, if I get the right job, all of those are fine. They're good things. But if you're trusting in those things to bring you significance, meaning, value in your life, it is put in the wrong place. And just like the people, the cities of Judah that Micah is warning, that what they value the most will be their demise. The truth applies to us too. The way we define ourselves, if it is apart from being a child of the living God, will eat us alive. So what does that mean for us today? A couple things. Number one, I think we have to be honest with ourselves. This text, while very difficult, should point us to self-examination. You may have bristled at it. 
You may have wanted to tune out to it. But at the very least, I would just plead with you, just examine yourself and see if it couldn't possibly be true. Be honest enough to admit that there are some things that you overvalue that are taking over your heart and life. All the way from providing for your family to reshaping your personhood and everything in between. And ask the question, is this a safe place for me to put my meaning, significance, and purpose? Or is this an idol that will ultimately fail? There's not a lot of hope in Micah chapter 1. We're going to get there, I promise. But the second thing I want to do is just give you a peek ahead. The solution for incurable wound, the idolatry at the heart of who we are, Micah is going to tell us in small ways and then getting bigger all the way through the book is that we have a God who saves, a God who is willing to intervene, a God who has a plan, and a God who he himself longs to set things right with his people. And so for you and I, the only thing that can compete with our counterfeit, cancerous, concealed idols is an increasingly larger view of our great and glorious and majestic God. And so the response to the confession or honesty about our idolatry is not necessarily to fix it, but to be enthralled with the goodness of God. To have our affections captured by the love of God expressed in the person of Jesus. And then thirdly, and this is why I think this is so important, we need to walk in faithfulness, and that's not only for ourselves, but for our neighbors. I love what Jen Oshman says again, our homes and our hearts will hold out hope when our neighbors and loved ones are exhausted from trying to keep up with the idols of our age. The warm steadiness of Christ's fathers will be a porch light in the dark night. And that's my prayer for us. We be honest, we'd celebrate God and that we would see that what we do matters. And that our very lives would be like the porch light beckoning people home. You've been beaten up, broken, disappointed. Your idolatry has failed you. We're not against you. We're not against you because we've been there. That's what Christians believe. We've all been there. We're all in the same boat. So why don't you just come home? Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.